RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Okay, it's Monday again. That means it's time for our health hacks. That means I'm welcoming Dr. Glenn Davies of ReversalNZ.co.nz back onto the program. Last time we talked, Glenn, we were talking about the patient-doctor relationship and what you should expect from a consultation. Now we're going to talk about um, the data that is required to back all that up. And I, I guess most of that will be blood tests, right? That comes through mainly labs, doesn't it? Yeah, so so you're right. There's the physical examination, but then you're often sent away for the lab tests. So what I thought we'd talk about today is um, how, what do you expect? How are they interpreted? Uh, what do they mean? Uh, what questions should you ask? That kind of stuff. Yeah, I guess this um, whole lab test um, what uh, uh, resource has been built up over, what, years and years, decades and decades. Yeah, and, and in fact, we're extremely lucky that uh, these lab tests are all provided um, free of charge, you know. So, so I mean, we need, we need to be grateful for that, I, I expect. Yeah, because quite a bit of resource goes into it, I would imagine. A lot of infrastructure, a lot of expertise. Um, yes, indeed. Yeah. And then to have the networks around the country so people have access. Yes, indeed. Okay. Good to know that it's free, <laughs> though yeah. someone pays somewhere, of course. Yes. Okay. So where do you want to start on labs, lab tests, et cetera? So, yeah, I wanted to, first of all, uh, normal ranges. So when you get a blood test back, you get a number, and that's referenced against a a normal range and you know whether you're normal or abnormal. So for example, anemia, we measure the hemoglobin. And if you're anemic, that means you're outside of the normal range. And right. we would yeah. we would go, why are you anemic, for example? So these normal ranges are, are useful. Otherwise you end up just with a number and it means nothing. But um, I just wanted to talk about how these normal ranges uh, form. And the example I wanted to look at is selenium. So selenium is one of the trace minerals. And they talk of a normal range of 0.45 up to 1.4. So 0.45 up to 1.4 is a normal range. And you'll get uh, given a result, which will normally be somewhere within that normal range. but then there's this interesting fact. They then talk about an ideal range, and the oh. ideal range for selenium is 1.6 to 1.9. And, and I was fascinated to see that there was no overlap between the normal range and the ideal range, which implies to me that almost everyone within New Zealand is selenium deficient, okay. which kind of yeah. makes sense because we know that our soils are selenium deficient. You know, so what they're doing, um, what the laboratory does to create this normal range is they'll take, um, let's say, 100 results, and they'll then lay one of these bell curves over top of, of that. So I think most people are familiar with the bell curve. It's got at 50% is the peak of it, and then it goes down on each side. And then if you're more than three standard deviations from the mean, you would normally be considered to be outside of the normal range. And that's kind of how all these blood tests occur. Um, 
So you kind of ideally would think if you're in the middle of a normal range, that would be good. But with the selenium example, in fact, if you're in the middle of the normal range, you're still deficient. So right, yeah. mm. I, I think one of the interesting talking points in this is um, we've got normal ranges, but to say what is the ideal range? Um, and I think selenium is a bit of an exception because uh, for most things, you know, we if you're in the top part of that normal range, you'd probably expect to be pretty good. So that then moves on to this next point is sometimes when you've spoken to your doctor or you've got the result back, they'll say, oh, you're normal. And you'll go, oh, sweet, I'm normal. But if we look at, for example, vitamin B12, the normal range is 110 to 650. So quite a big normal range. And if you were at 111, which is just inside that normal range of 110, you might go get caught, told you're normal. And that might be all the information that you get. So I would suggest if you're told you're normal, you might ask that next, next question of um, what is my actual result within that normal range? Because if I was just 111, you know, if we tested that again a week later, you might actually be 108, which would be considered abnormal. You know, so the point I'm trying to make there is you probably want to be in the top third of that vitamin B12 range, you know, not towards the bottom of it, because you might still get symptoms of fatigue, for example, right. if, you, if you're at that bottom of the normal range. So I would suggest um, knowing that your normal is probably not ideal information. You want to know where you are within that normal range. And for most things, you want to be at the top of the normal range, unless it's a bad thing where you want to be towards the bottom of the normal range. So the two points are the difference between the normal range and the ideal range. And then you want to know where you are within that range. Uh, and you generally want to be at the, the top end of that normal range. So if you're, told, ideal. if you're told you're in the normal range, should you then ask the question, what part of normal are we talking about? Yeah, and and of course it varies per test and there's a whole lot of nuance here, but just as a general principle, I'd be saying, can you define normal a little bit further? Because I want to be super normal, you know, I want to be yeah. I want to be ideal, not just okay. Kiwi normal. <laughs> yeah. Given there's as you mentioned a deficiency there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So okay. so that those are two points that I, I wanted to make there around ideal range and and where you sit within a normal range. And this is all through blood tests, is it? This is how this is determined. This is all through blood tests. And so but there's a little bit of discussion around that because there's two other important things about the time that you get the blood test and whether the blood test is done before you've had food or after food. Um, so we've already talked about the value of missing breakfast. So um, so yeah. probably all, all of our listeners are likely uh, to be turning up at the lab in the morning before breakfast anyway. But the main um, place where this is relevant is with the lipids, the cholesterol and the triglyceride. We get different information whether we're doing it um, fasted before food or whether we're doing it after having breakfast. And generally for lipids, I like to see it um, fasted. 
And then another point is time of the day, particularly for hormones. So if we look at testosterone, the male hormone, um, or no, actually, let's look at cortisol. That's a better example. Mm -hmm. Cortisol will be highest. It starts to rise around 4 a.m. to get us ready for the day. It's highest around 8 a.m. And then it starts to reduce. And in the afternoon, the levels will be reasonably low again. So cortisol, we'd like to measure around 8 a.m. So for most people, I'm talking about doing a fasted blood test around 8 a.m. in the morning uh, for this type of, um, you know, how annual annual check kind of test. Right, yeah. So the body knows when to raise that level, even though you're yeah. asleep and oblivious yes. to it. And it, it's kind of that rise in cortisol that starts to get you um, ready for the day. Um, and interesting, cortisol and melatonin are like on a, a seesaw, and melatonin is the sleep hormone. So, you know, as melatonin goes up, cortisol goes down. And the other way around is cortisol goes up around 4 a.m. You start, melatonin goes up and you start to wake up. Um, it's a problem when people are stressed because that prevents that change in melatonin. And that's why there's such an association between stress and sleeping poorly. Right, um, okay. Getting that yeah. seesaw effect. Yeah. Something's keeping control over the systems. Right, it's like okay, time to pump in the this and pull down the that. Yeah, yeah, okay, all right. So you you should maybe take or, or if you're going to be doing tests, be prepared to go sort of early, right? Go yeah. early. Yeah, and our our lab opens at seven thirty in the morning, so that people um, who who are starting work um, aren't missing too much work. Yeah, wouldn't want to I do that. It wouldn't for you, Paul, because you start about 4 a.m., don't you? That's right. Are they open at that? No, I don't think they're open at that time. No, no. Uh, here's a question. Those levels that you're talking about, do they adjust for the – okay, so I get up really early, right? So would they adjust to the sort of timing that I do things or have I got that going on? Normally it would be in sleep while I'm awake. Yeah, we would have to account for that. And for example, with cortisol, we would be at 8 a.m. picking your up your levels as they're coming down because you've already been in action for four hours by that stage. So we would have to account for that. You know, if, if someone that didn't know your history was looking at it, you might be told you have low cortisol. Um, so you have to right. interpret the result within the context of the person's life. Okay, so that's that. What about, um, what do we go on to next? I think we're into specific tests. Um, what about uh, ones that I'm familiar with, anemia and white blood cells? What's, uh, obviously we want to know the levels of that, but what does that mean if, you know, if it's normal or, or not normal? Yeah, so we, we covered this briefly last week, but these are the tests that would usually be part of an annual check or a warrant of fitness. So a full blood count, so... The first part of that is looking at the red blood cells and to see if you're anemic. So if you're anemic, you don't have enough red blood cells uh, and that can result in tiredness and it can be a sign of blood loss, which uh, is generally oh, okay. pretty serious. So Yeah, it would be, yeah. Hmm. But there's, there's anemia falls into three categories. So there's um, iron deficiency anemia is common. That's very common in women who are menstruating. Um, but if you're 
not in that group and we find you're anemic, we'd be generally pretty worried and we would be asking questions, you know, if it's an iron deficiency anemia around blood loss, so thinking particularly of bowel cancer and bladder cancer and those wow. kind of things. So that's yeah. what that's picking up. Then um, there's also this other group of anemias where when we look at the red blood cell, it's too big and there's too much hemoglobin in it. And that's when we start thinking of B12 and folic acid deficiency. And then you've got this other big group in the middle uh, where people who have chronic health conditions like a, a kidney problem, they get uh, a normal chromic anemia, the cells look normal. So there's a whole lot of information and, and nuance that we get in there. Then we move on to all these, the white blood cells. So if neutrophils are high, we're looking at a bacterial infection. If lymphocytes are high, we're looking at a viral infection. Uh, eosinophils are high, we might be thinking of allergies so or parasites. So there's a whole lot of information that the doctor's um, computer in the head is sort of um, going through when they just scan that result. And you know that you might look at the doctor who's just scanned it and all that thinking has actually gone on within his or her computer in their head when they've analyzed that result. Um, plus a whole lot more, all within a split second. So there's a, a lot going on there and they might not explain all that thought process, but they've done all that in their head as, as they've looked through that result. Must be quite interesting for someone like yourself in that situation, because it's like looking in a, in a way like a, putting a roadmap together or something, isn't it? Pulling the data together and sort of forming a picture. Exactly. And then when you've overlaid that on top of the history and the examination, uh, but it's like a crystal ball. I think I could get these results and tell most people um, the amount of stress in their life, uh, what they've been eating, yeah, okay. um, what they've been drinking in terms of alcohol. Um, I, I can virtually tell people what they've been eating. So, um, you know, I, I, I think it's probably a bit scary for people. Um, I'm, I'm, I've got a crystal ball when I interpret these test results. And it's usually accurate, right? Usually. Yeah, um, particularly if you've taken a good history. If you remember last week, we talked about 90% of it being in the history. And then these tests are used to kind of confirm what you suspect or confirm or refute what you respect. So, you know, so these are, yeah, it, but it, it, adds, it adds another layer of information. Yeah, uh, the, and meanwhile, the um, patient, if we could use that word, is is watching every expression and every nuance of your face as you're going through them, if they're there. Like, yeah. what's he thinking? What's he seeing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, all, all right, right. Keep, keep your poker so, face on. Yeah, right. so... Where then, do we go now? We're going to look at um, renal function or kidney function, and we're particularly looking at this test called Estimated Glomerular Filtration Rate, the glomerulus being the, the filtering part of the kidney. And that uh, test tells us if the kidneys are working well or not. And for most people, they are. But as people get older, their kidney function reduces. And we're sort of in quite old, elderly people, we would accept a slightly reduced renal function without it being abnormal for their age. So a little bit of nuance in there, a little bit of interpretation. Yeah, so when you say filter, how, how I'm curious, how, how do, because um, I'm imagining, you know, those water filters, I know it's probably nothing like it, but obviously there must be some structure or, or, or the way that uh, the, the kidney is 
made that what sort of flushes stuff through and catches yeah waste yeah. on the way through is, is that how it works i think i think you can think of it um in that way it's 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 remove filtering out the toxic stuff and that goes out into the urine and is, is excreted through the bladder and then the stuff that the kidney wants to keep it's reintroducing back into the uh into the blood um so it's actually an incredibly complex uh, organ that's doing this continuously throughout the day and the night. Um, and I, I, I don't think we could create a machine that can do it um, as brilliantly uh, as this kidney does, and it just keeps doing it. It keeps on doing it. How does it know? There must be some sort of chemical analysis going on sort of all the time. Constant. Huh? constant analysis, and then it's uh, managed by um, hormones and a whole variety of hormones which control all of these, um, the way that these things are put back into the, so basically everything's removed, and then the things we need to keep is put back in again, um, and and it's it's incredible, beautiful, it's, it's really an amazing organ, in fact, all of the organs of our body uh, are incredible, but the fact that the kidney Without complaining, it just is constantly um, doing that and monitoring. Yeah, if you don't have a problem with them, you don't even know they're there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, nature, eh? Okay, so um, that's um, that's uh, what uh, kidney function. Um, have we got any more to talk about there before we go on to the next? No. Well, the next thing? one um, the, is the other excretory organ, the the liver. So. Um, the, the liver has a whole lot more functions than that, uh, it, but it's uh, working on excretion. It's, it's making things that we need, um, a, a whole lot more stuff than that, and it's quietly going about and doing its uh, job uh, without us having to think about it. But again, we probably don't notice it until it goes wrong, but in the liver function tests, the first part of that test is bilirubin, and some people with a liver disease, their eyes will go yellow or their skin will go yellow. That's called jaundice, and that's the buildup of yep. bilirubin. So, so that's telling us something's gone wrong with the liver. And then we we dig down a little bit deeper and we look at the enzymes inside the liver. And when the liver's doing too much work those enzymes go up. And one of its jobs is detoxifying. So for example, people drinking too much alcohol, the the um, enzyme called GGT um, is, we've got more of it because it's doing more work and we'll, we'll see that um, go up. So you know how I said it sometimes feels like I've got a crystal ball. I can often say to mm -hmm. somebody, you know how you said to me, you're having one glass of wine per night. Um, is it actually one glass? Because, um, you know, I've now just got this busted. And, and of course, there's lots of other reasons for GGT going up, but it would prompt me to ask that question again. Um, right. So, so there. And then the other part of it, um, the other two enzymes, uh, AST uh, is, is one of them. We that gives me information about whether fat's being deposited back into the liver. Um, and again, um, 
I would probably know that somebody is eating too much carbohydrate, too much sugar, and too much ultra-processed food if I'm seeing the um, AST going up. So again, it would prompt me to ask a bit more detailed questions. And then, of course, there's infections, the liver hepatitis, and, and that will do that as well. So, right. so I'm picking up that information. And again, the doctor has spent, um, you know, a couple of seconds scanning that result and all of that information and thought processes going on in the computer in their brain. So when you say fat being deposited back, do you say back in the liver? Um, is that because why? There's nowhere else for it to go or there's been You're, some um, fat failure in, in the way it works? What happens there? No, so... So when you eat sugar, for example, so let's say you have a, um, a, a lemonade or a Coke, for example, and there's more sugar in your blood than the body needs, it will be transferred to the liver and the liver will turn that into fat, which is triglyceride, and then that fat will be stored and some of it will be stored in the liver, oh, but right, most gotcha. of it will be stored inside the fat cells, which is called getting fat. But um, our yep. liver gets fat first. So our, our liver gets fat and, you know, the parts of our body that we don't want to get fat, like around our tummy, that gets um, fat. I've always said it would be nice if we could tell the fat where to go. You know, we could direct it a little bit over the pectoral muscles, a little bit more over the biceps, maybe a little bit more in the cheeks, but it just goes to the places we don't want it. And in terms of evolution, is that because if you – don't know where your next uh, amount of energy is coming from, you might as well store it because you might need it at some point. Is that is that the basic mechanism yep. behind how this fat is stored? It's a, it's a wonderful point because in our modern obesogenic environment, we see getting fat as a bad thing, but the ability to store fat is probably what allowed humans to become the dominant species on earth because in times of plenty, so for example, at the end of summer, while there was fruit on the trees, we could eat a whole lot of that and deliberately put on weight so we could get through the hard winter. And, you know, we stored fat and fat cells, but we also stored it in the, in the liver. So, you know, this is only a bad thing in our modern environment. This right. was a positive adaptive thing in times gone by okay um so that's interesting where do we get to on the list uh, um, next one's uric acid which is oh, the yes. test that's not um, that's not good stuff to have is it that's no so so gout's a really interesting condition and we'll probably do a whole talk on gout but um the uric acid is dissolved in our blood normally but when it reaches a certain concentration then it will precipitate. So, for example, if you imagine getting a, a glass of warm water and you dissolve a teaspoon of salt in that, it'll dissolve. Another teaspoon will dissolve. Maybe by the time you got to about the fifth or sixth teaspoon, it will actually remain as a crystal on the bottom because you've saturated the solution. Right. Gotcha. So most people that have done basic chemistry will understand a saturated solution. Now, you can change that um, concentration by changing the acidity, changing the temperature, um, or you can put less water in there. If you put less water, you will saturate that solution sooner. So that's why hydration is so important for gout or for preventing gout. 
Um, and when your uric acid reaches a certain level, it starts to precipitate and it precipitates in joints and it literally is like having broken glass in a joint. I've heard that. Listening mm. who has had gout will understand that absolutely. Imagine shards of broken glass in a joint. You mm. you will not be happy and and that's what happens with uric acid. So we're testing uric acid because we're trying to pick up the level, you know, just before it's precipitating, you know, and then we will say to someone, I want you to lower your uric acid. And in particular, I want you to make sure you stay well hydrated so that there's more volume to dissolve the uric acid within. Is it a diet thing or is it just hydration's a problem? I take it you can... Just like we've talked about uh, type 2 diabetes, you can reverse it, right? It's reversible. You're yep. not stuck with it no matter what for ever in a day. No. Um, so all the things you mentioned are important. Staying well hydrated. Um, you can reduce the uric acid uh, in your diet. But probably the biggest part, you can stop making uric acid. Uh, and you do that by reducing sugar and carbs and all the processed carbohydrates. So, um, yes, what you've picked up on is that most people will notice that there's a recurrent theme here that sugar and ultra-processed uh, carbohydrates and over-consuming carbs is the cause of virtually every one of these chronic conditions we talk about. So it's not that hard. Stop having sugar. Stop having ultra-processed carbs and reduce your overall carb intake and you can deal with most of these conditions. Is that the advice you'd normally get or would you normally get medication for it? Just, you know, here's, take this, this will sort it. Yeah. What happens? If you, if you come and see me, that's the advice you're going to get all the time. Yeah. But I, I think the pharmaceutical industry has influenced medicine so strongly that I think the first thought for many doctors is what is the medication, what is the pill for this condition, yeah. rather than what is the cause, the underlying cause, um, how can we manipulate the terrain so that um, terrain, this yeah. condition doesn't happen. And, you know, that's where I'd always like to start. Now, there's, of course, places for medicines, and I would hate to go back to a world where there's no antibiotics, you know, but... Um, you know, I think we need to start with looking at the cause and how can we use lifestyle medicine to fix it before we reach for the prescription pad. Okay, so that's uric acid, right? Yep. I've um, that. just mentioned amylase, which is the pancreas test. Oh. Um, and then lipids. So this is you know, uh, an area of controversy, and I probably interpret lipids quite a bit differently to many doctors. Many doctors are concerned about cholesterol or LDL cholesterol. I'm, in fact, more concerned about triglycerides. Triglycerides are the fats which have been made from carbohydrate. These are the fats that you are making, not the fats that you are eating. And the reason I said it's important to do this test fasting is that when I see this in a fasted test, I know that this is what people are making because what they've eaten has been processed um, you know, during the night. So I, when yeah. I see a high triglyceride, I know that person is making too much carbohydrate from too much blood glucose. And that's the bit that I want to know. I'm 
I'm less interested in the, the cholesterol reading unless somebody already has developed heart disease or they have a very strong family history. For most people, I'm more interested in triglyceride and um, seeing that that is nice and, and low and they have turned off the making of new fat. Because that's the stuff that ends up in arteries. Is that right? That's exactly right. This is what ends up within the LDL um, molecule, which um, then can, in some circumstances, be deposited in the arteries. So, yep, I want to know that the triglyceride is nice and low. And then there's the other, the other part about this is HDL. HDL is called good cholesterol, and I do like to see that that's high. Um, that's the particle which returns the cholesterol to the liver um, where it's um, recycled. So I like to see good cholesterol high and I like to see triglyceride low. And when I see that, I'm usually less concerned mm. about what the cholesterol is. And again, you know, like, like I've said twice already, the computer within the doctor's brain is doing all of that stuff. Um, yep. and adding it to the information that they already have. They're doing in the head a cardiovascular risk assessment, and they're deciding about whether this is something to take further or, or not. So all of that's going on. But I, the point I want to make is I do like to see it fasting, and you won't always be asked to do a fasting lipids. Okay. Moving on, what's yep. HbA1c? Okay. Is, is that what we've just been talking about or is that a, is that something this, a, this is a gain it's an aspect of what we've been talking about and you know as you know my interest is in type 2 diabetes and HbA1c is the amount of blood glucose that gets stuck to the red blood cell and if you've got a low blood glucose there's only a little bit stuck to it got a moderate blood glucose, you've got a moderate amount stuck to it, you've got a high blood glucose, you've got a lot stuck to it. And the interesting and cunning part of this test is that that red blood still stays around for about 72 days, so, you know, around three months. So it gives us an average of what the blood glucose has been over that time, and that allows us to diagnose normal um, pre-diabetes and diabetes. So, you know, this is a common test, and unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of people in that pre-diabetic range. And the point about this is if the glucose is sticking to that particular protein, it's sticking to lots of other proteins in the body, probably all the other proteins in the body. So it's sticking to the back of the eyes, to those um, kidneys, those wonderful organs that we talked about, um, you know, sticking to nerves, you know, and, and we don't want our proteins getting all covered in this sticky glucose because it gets dirty. You know, imagine if I went and sprayed a glucose solution on your couch, all the <laughs> dirt would stick to it. You know, you'd yeah, say, yeah. please, please don't do that. And we don't want glucose sticking to our proteins. Iron, yeah. I see is next on the list. Yes, yeah, so iron's, um, you know, iron's interesting and in fact quite difficult to interpret. So there's four parts to iron studies. There's the amount of iron in your blood. Then there's uh, a molecule called transferrin, which is like a bus. And then you've got your transferrin saturation, which is like the seats on the bus. And then you've got ferritin, which is the warehouse. So um, I know that we're probably uh, getting pushed for time, but very quickly the people get on the, on the bus and then they get transported to the end destination. And we're measuring all of those parts of the equation. And that tells us a lot about 
how the iron's being transported and whether there's a chronic iron deficiency or a sudden one, um, you know, and, and again, a lot going on within the doctor's head. If it's something abnormal, they might spend the time going through that description. Otherwise, they'll just say, no, everything looks good. And generally, you can accept that. Um, but also having too much iron is a problem because you can rust, you know, so you don't you don't want to have high iron either. So, yeah, there's a lot going on. So when, when you say iron, we're, we're actually talking actual iron. Like if yeah, you gathered up yeah. all the iron, I don't know, but you'd have it like a block eventually of, of what we'd recognise as metal, right? Yeah, so so some some of these minerals are, are metals, yeah, and, and it literally is iron. It's um, Fe2+, I think, and yeah, it oxidises or rusts, it becomes Fe3+. So Made in the middle of supernova explosions, I think. Yeah, probably, and and our body needs just the right amount of it. If we get anemic, if we don't have enough and lacking in energy, and if we got too much, we get you know we have this condition called hemochromatosis, and again, um, you know that were going on in the doctor's computer in their mind. Wow, B two and folate. Yeah, actually B twelve vitamin. B12. Sorry, B twelve. Yeah. Yeah. So. These are B vitamins. They're the two that we measure. The B12 tends to come from animal products. So people who are on a whole food plant-based diet will often get low in B12. And the folate comes from the green leafy vegetables like spinach and silver beet. So people that aren't eating enough of that um, will see that low. And that could contribute to a, a type of anemia. But it's a really good clue about the quality of people's diet. So I, I like looking at B12 and folate, but there's issues with how some people absorb B12, which is called pernicious anemia. So again, um, if it's low, there's another set of tests that would be done to investigate that further. Right. What does the thyroid do? Remind me what the thyroid does again. Yeah, so the thyroid is um, shaped like a capital H. It sits um, in the base of your neck. Uh, many people in, in times gone by and when, when there was iodine deficiency had an enlarged thyroid, which is called a goiter. Um, and when people's thyroid is enlarged, you can actually feel it um, just poking up above the collarbone. Um, it can push backwards on the, um, you know, the esophagus and the trachea. So, you know, it can um, particularly affect um, breathing in some cases. So it's a lot going on there, but it controls our metabolic rate. So an underactive thyroid, imagine a toad, and an overactive thyroid, imagine a hummingbird. Um, and where you are on the toad to hunting, hummingbird scale determines your metabolism. So the, we're looking at the, th the thyroid function, uh, T4, which is the inactive thyroid hormone, T3, which is the active one, and thyroid-stimulating hormone. And we're looking at, at that. And if there's an abnormality, we might do some thyroid antibodies subsequently, which look for Graves' disease and Hashimoto's. So again, a whole lot would be going on in the doctor's computer, but it, this is the one probably where you knowing it's normal might not be enough because you want to know where you are on that spectrum between the toad and the hummingbird. And you might not want to be one little point above toad. Yeah. That may not be, uh, might not be thriving. And equally, you might not want to be one point below hummingbird because mm -hmm. that would be exhausting. 
Yes, it would be. <laughs> Just getting exhausted thinking about it because they, gosh, that that flap rate is incredible, isn't it? <laughs> on those little birds. All right, so that explains that CRP inflammation. What's that? So it stands for C-reactive protein. You want inflammation levels to be low. Um, inflammation is kind of behind every chronic health condition. So if you think of inflamed joints, you know that's arthritis, but you can have an inflamed liver, an inflamed brain, uh, inflamed eyes. You just don't want inflammation. So we're trying to keep that down. And having a raised CRP is a good um, clue that there's something gone wrong in the body. You know, and we would start searching for causes when the CRP is up. So you want a low CRP. And then cortisol, that's the stress hormone. So you want you don't want to have no cortisol, that's called Addison's disease, and you, you can't function with, with no cortisol. Equally, you don't want to have too much cortisol. Um, that's Cushing syndrome. You want to have just the right amount. But as you get more and more stressed, we would see that cortisol level go up. And stress is probably the modern killer. You know, our we're designed to be cavemen to walk out of the cave, see the saber-toothed tiger. However we respond to the saber-toothed tiger, kill it and um, take it inside and skype to the people in the cave about how brave we are or run away and don't mention there was ever a tiger there (laughs) anyway. But whatever we do, that's all over in 30 seconds. We've either killed the tiger or it's eaten us, but it's over. We're designed to have short, sharp stresses, but our modern environment causes chronic stress. Oh, right. And mm. We have chronic high cortisol levels. So I might have talked about cold water immersion. That's a short, sharp, saber-toothed tiger type stress. Our body likes that. It li- it's like rebooting the computer. But chronic, low-grade work stress is bad for us, and that pushes up cortisol level, and that causes a whole lot of stuff, including gaining weight on the tummy. So very common in people who are stressed. And so I like to see the cortisol just in the, well, towards the bottom third of that normal range. Gotcha. Almost at the end of the list. Yeah. Um, Fasting insulin and C-peptide we've spoken about before, but that measures insulin resistance. And along with CRP, those are very important tests for looking at your metabolism. Uh, I've got vitamin D on there. Now, sometimes you have to pay for a vitamin D test, but um, as long as you're not struggling for every penny, I would encourage people to do that because mm-hmm. a vast majority of people in New well, hang on, I don't know if I have, but a lot of people, I'm not sure if it's a majority, but a lot of people are vitamin D deficient uh, in um, the winter. And so... Having a vitamin D level done if you're feeling um, under the weather in the winter is probably a very good thing to do. We've spoken about vitamin D specifically in the past. You can go back and listen to that on on RCR Breakfast Show. Um, But yeah, big topic, but vitamin D is a great test to do. And then zinc and selenium, I talked right at the start about many people are selenium deficient, but zinc levels seem to be very, very low. And I'm picking up low testosterone in men, and I think there's a relationship between the low testosterone and the low zinc. Okay, right. Now, that's interesting. Is that something that you've been suspecting for a while or just sort of starting to put two and two together now? I'm, I'm starting to see this more and more. And, yeah, I'm wondering if zinc deficiency is accounting for the lower testosterone levels. 
Um, and the normal range is something like nine to 45. And I see a lot of testosterones at 10. And I'm I'm still haven't completely explained that, but I think the low zinc's part of that equation. You could um, not that you want to be experimenting on people, I suppose, but you could you you could adjust levels and see how that affects the yeah. other level, right? And then pretty soon you'd see a trend, wouldn't you? And I do see that. I I see oh, okay. the testosterone level when you replace zinc. I see it go up, but sort of from ten to fourteen, I'm not seeing it going all the way up to the 30. Right. And I'm so I'm thinking there's multiple factors involved in that, not not just as simple as replacing zinc. What do you think we should do next time, Ralph? So we've had some of the listeners request uh, a discussion about supplements. Oh it's, right, yeah, yeah, and and um, we will do that next week. Now we're not going to get down to the level of take this number of milligrams of magnesium and this number of milligrams of zinc. I, but I think we should talk about the, the concept of supplementing in general. So a lot of people say supplementing with vitamins and minerals just makes expensive urine, meaning we don't need them and we pee them out. Other people would say um, they're essential and people take a lot of supplements every day. Um, and as in most uh, things that we've discussed, there's truth in both arguments and probably the um, advice sits somewhere in the middle. My thinking about it has changed quite dramatically recently with my own personal experience with feeling so much better when I when I started taking supplements, despite thinking I had close to an okay. ideal diet. So yeah, we'll, we'll talk about, about that. Thank you, Dr. Glenn Davies. Thank you. Enjoyed it as always. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.